So, we're ready to rock and roll? We are. Yeah, ready. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the studio. Uh, you know, is there a topic more on our lips and past our lips than grocery? So, it is a super pleasure to have joining us today in the non existent studio the one and only Chris Pode, Managing Director of Online at uh, Tesco. Now, Chris, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jamie. Hello, listeners, globally. (laughs) I think plural, you're probably uh, flattering us there, Chris. Tell everyone who you are and what does Managing Director, Online mean? Well, my name is Chris Pode, and I came back from the US last summer. I'd worked for Amazon.com for just over 10 years. Uh, six years here in the UK on the country leadership team, and then four years in the US and Seattle. Um, but I've had, my career has been entirely in the digital pretty much all the way through. I joined Tesco in October of last year, so still not quite uh, at the one-year anniversary on the date of this recording. Um, <laughs> let's hope we make it. Let's, let's not do anything to imperil that. Let's hope. We only have a few weeks to go. Um, and I, I have responsibility for Tesco's digital business. So I have... Uh, direct responsibility for all our online activities here in the UK. We have a an online grocery business, now the largest online grocery business in the world. I have a um, strategic oversight for our global digital activities, although to be fair, I haven't spent a ton of time on that in the last few months. It's mostly been focused on our UK business. Right, and it, it covers, because we always think food, uh, obviously, because uh, we see the vans, we, you know, order the slots, but yet just, just give us a feel for the size uh, and scope of the business overall, food, non-food, and then the global other? I focus on our grocery and general merchandise business. Uh, we also have digital businesses within our bank and our mobile business. I'm, I'm less focused on those. Uh, so in the UK, we have an online grocery business. We also have general merchandise. We have 350 stores that we pick from across the UK. Uh, we have six fulfillment centers with different levels of automation uh, surrounding London, really kind of surrounding the M25. We have our first micro-fulfillment center just opened in the last month in West Bromwich. In the UK, we cover about 99.8%. I say about, precisely. (laughs) We're only one decimal place here, Chris. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm ex-Amazon, so a decimal place counts. Um, 99.8% of UK postcodes in terms of delivery of of groceries uh, or click and collect. We also have a business in Ireland. We have a large business in Eastern Europe. Uh, We have a large business in Asia. And we have a joint venture in India. Wow. Now, when you say largest online grocer, is that by turnover, slots, kilograms of baked beans delivered? How, How are you measuring yourself against others? Well, I say largest online grocer. I think there are other supermarkets with larger e-commerce businesses. But if you're talking about food and grocery, uh, I think we're the largest by uh, the volume of orders that we fulfill each week and the and the, the value of those orders. Mm. Well, look, we'll come back to that because, you know, the business has been tested, stretched and uh, performed uh, incredibly this year. Let's focus on you. You very quickly said, da, 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 Amazon. But uh, just Give us the uh, the thumbnail CV about how you end up in such a great job. What What's the trajectory to MD Online? 
Well, if we go all the way back, my first real job was working for a small consulting firm, principally working with broadcasters, actually. But most of the work was trying to figure out how to turn brands and franchises uh, into digital businesses. Most of the work was with the BBC at the time. This was the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. So creating lots of PowerPoint charts that went up and to the right. I then joined a search engine called Ask Jeeves, if you remember Ask Jeeves. Well, I did have a quick ask around yesterday, and uh, the the sort of consensus of people was, oh, yeah, I remember them. Great advertising, but it seemed that none of us used it, but we we remember the advertising. Well, that's that's not that's certainly not true. But there were many search <laughs> engines. That, if, it, if you can remember pre-Google, this was actually, um, I don't think it was before Google was founded, but certainly before it got you mm. know wide usage in the UK. There were many search engines. There was Lycos, Hotpot, Hotpot, Hotbot, Dogpile, Yahoo, many. And Ask Jeeves was one of those. And um, Mm. I worked in in brand management and corporate development there. Then I worked for a company called Otto Group, which is a large German multi-channel retailer, not so well-known in this country, very well-known in Germany and across continental Europe. They had acquired in the 90s two catalog retail companies, Grattan and Freeman's, uh, and I joined and was there for five years as head of e-commerce, helping them move from a catalog call center business towards an online business. And um, oldies like me will remember physical catalogs, but also, I mean, we met in those heady years when the catalog companies were some of the first to really embrace, they were like the prototypical department stores. So, you know, when you were there, that was a real time of change from you know, sending two kilograms of print, these thousand, two thousand page catalogs, but very strong customer management, extensive product ranges, and you know, really moving people into the digital domain at, at quite a speed, really. You're quite right. And I, re- I remember Ian, we met for the first time when I when I worked there. I think you came in to write me a school report to see how well I was doing for my boss. Yeah, can um, I just say, look how that turned out. Yeah, look how that turned out. <laughs> I, re- I remember the document in its courier font. It was very attractive. And thankfully, Thank I think you. you gave me more, more or less a, a, a reasonable write-up. Um, yeah, and Jeff, Jeff never said thank you uh, to me this last few years. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it's jeff at amazon.com if you want to send him a note. Um, so you're quite right. So the catalogue companies now and even there, then and even now have many of the assets required to be a successful online business. They have a product catalogue, I mean, literally a product catalogue, with images and descriptions in a structured way. They're used to remote fulfillment. They're used to managing returns. A lot of the promotional mechanics used in catalog retailing are similar to the way that you know you might think about online marketing and managing at the margins and so on. So when I started, about 5% of sales were online. When I left, about 45 50% of sales were online. Wow. So an amazing transformation there. And so then you went to Amazon. And again, culture shift, business shift, that was quite... Um, you know, quite a robust move. Big change when I moved, you're quite right. It was quite a small company in the UK when I joined. I started in the first party retail part of Amazon where where the company buys the stock, sets the prices, and is the seller of record. Mm-hmm. Spent a couple of years in that part of the business and then spent most of my time uh, in the third party marketplace part of Amazon. Uh, I managed that business in the UK and we saw that business grow dramatically as selection grew, the number of sellers supported grew. So really, it was a lesson in scale and complexity, how to scale an organization through the multi-billions, managing millions of third-party companies, the processes and policies and tools, data required to do that. 
I moved to the US in 2015. I stayed within the third party part of the company, uh, running a business called Fulfillment by Amazon, uh, which is where which we all know, <laughs> which you, 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 your, your listener may be aware of. Yes. Um, so a real lesson there again in scale, but with much more of an operations focus, learning a lot about supply chain economics, inventory mm -hmm. placement, demand forecasting, uh, and then launched uh, a new business called Amazon Business, uh, a B2B platform internationally in Europe and in Japan, but a very similar model, but serving corporate and business customers. I always had uh, a laugh with that because I met one of the guys who's launched it and I my numbers may be wrong, so please correct me. He said to me in a very dry German accent, saying, oh, yes, we're just launching in beta with uh, 100 million products, but that's just the start. So I'm not sure if, if my millions are wrong, but I just remember the scale of ambition and how when you flick the switch, that was you know quite a beta or soft launch. Yeah, I think it scaled, the international part of that business scaled from zero to about two and a half billion in sales in about 18 months. So um, wow. a lesson in scale. And I think that 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 ambition, setting those big goals and thinking about how to scale a business is something I hope to bring, have have brought, I think, to an extent, but hope to bring to Tesco as we grow our, our grocery mm. business. Before we go to Tesco, it's just a more personal question, which is, you know, as you grow as a manager and leader, uh, you develop this set of questions, and uh, I'm sure your team will tease you. They'll say, oh, God, whenever in a meeting, if you present to Chris, he's bound to ask you this tough question, sort of your Chris gateway question. If you look back over your time uh, before Amazon and then the time you're coming back in October, have you developed a question or two that is now part of your mindset that you didn't used to think about before? I can think of a couple of examples. One would be, really understanding the fundamentals of the business and the things that customers will care about in the long term, those persistent mm. aspects of the business that do not change. There's lots of attention and focus naturally on uh, on new things, on innovation, quite rightly. But the reality is most of my time at Amazon and indeed most of my time now at Tesco is about focusing and improving on the fundamentals. And those are fair prices, in-stock availability, fast delivery, customer service, and resolving issues if they happen. Mm. Most of our efforts should be focused on those fundamentals. And so the question I ask in presentations is, how does this work or how does this project improve those fundamentals? The second would be a longer-term view, perhaps, than I had before, making sure that we're investing in things and building businesses and processes that scale into the multi-billions across a 5, 10, or even 20-year period, rather than optimizing for the next quarter or the next year. Those would be two things I think I've learned in the last 10 years that that you know I'm trying to mm. put into play now. Sage points. Now, um, one of the things that, that I don't really get, I think the biggest company I've worked for is about 25, 40,000 people, uh, but I wasn't there for long. So I've always had a smaller company uh, approach and experience. But I mean, Jamie works for a global behemoth. You know, Tesco is a massive company. You are a very personable human being, person to person. But operating at scale, uh, how how do you find, especially you know, over COVID times, that you've been able to get your management style and effectiveness, uh, A, at scale, and B, when there isn't as much face-to-face -face as there was before. How's that been, you know, from landing back in the UK? 
Well, I, I think I come back to values and principles and tenets. So the values at Tesco are helping cu customers a little more every day, treating people, both colleagues and customers, as you'd expect to be treated yourself. They, they, sound, mm. um, they sound obvious, but actually really having those values at the heart of everything you do means that decision-making is often easier when you're working to those values and then establishing the set of principles and tenets through which you can judge decision-making. Um, mm. So that that would that's that helps, I think, when you're working more remotely. You don't have as much face-to-face -face time with colleagues. It's easier to determine the right decision if you're referring back to a set of fundamental principles and tenets. And one of the reasons I joined Tesco is because I saw that same value placed on tenets and principles, those similar values to those I'd experienced before. And, and indeed, over the past four or five months, the organization, frankly, taking maybe an external view, has done an absolutely phenomenal job of helping customers and keeping colleagues safe. But fundamentally, it comes down to those core values. And not all companies have those values. And, and you know, I, I've observed that as well, not at Tesco or Amazon, but in other organizations, I've observed different values which have led to different decision making. Yes. No, I think that's a really good point. Just just maybe put your mind back to day before COVID and uh, talk us through how that impacted on you, you know, inside inside the business. Well, I joined in October of last year. Uh, I spent the first couple of months really in induction. So working in stores, driving vans, picking <laughs> orders. Absolutely. I mean, really, really enjoyed it, actually meeting people in the company clearly and and getting to know how the organization works. So we get to about March and mm -hmm. I was driving back from Birmingham actually. Um, in the Tesco van or were you No, uh, I was 56, 56 miles an hour. <laughs> I, I was I know I was driving in my car back back from Birmingham uh, where I'd been looking at the site where we've just recently opened our new micro fulfillment center. Uh, and my phone rang and it was a member of the the executive of of the company. And I I took the call and this was, I think, mid-March, and um, there'd been a call with the health secretary, and it was starting to be obvious that some level of restriction was going to be put in place, and to start thinking about planning for that. So I pulled over into a service station, got the team on, the, on, on a call, and started initially thinking about what we should be prioritizing. And we started with helping people in need. We actually started with how can we make sure that people who are likely not to be able to leave their homes can still get access to food. Mm. So we started that project in, in, in mid-March. And then over the next week or so, it quickly became obvious that the demand for online grocery, both from people who were in a vulnerable state, but just the general populace, was going to be enormous. And, mm. and therefore, our second priority was how can we build capacity to serve as many households as we possibly could. We pretty much dropped everything else. We dropped every other priority in the team. We assembled a group of about 15 people across all parts of the company, we started meeting daily, then we started meeting twice a day, and ultimately we're meeting three times a day, seven days a week, probably for about three months. Uh, mm -hmm. Every evening for the first two months, we were meeting with the Tesco Executive Committee and reporting back on what we'd done in the last 24 hours. So the whole group got into this 24-hour cycle of decision-making and implementation. The beginning of March, end of March, We'd started to see some absence in the organization, people either shielding or becoming unwell. And we were serving then about 660,000 orders a week, something like that, a little bit down from pre-COVID, actually, given we'd started to see some absence. Right. Um, 
And we identified changes we could make to our operating model. First of all, we needed to hire a bunch of people. We ended up hiring about 16,000 people initially on a temporary basis within three to four weeks since we've made those roles permanent. And we tried to identify all the operating model changes we could make, whether it was starting picking earlier, extending our click and collect hours, bringing more vans online, accelerating our acquisition plan for for vans, uh, hiring more colleagues, changing the way we pick. In the end, we found about 50 substantial operational changes that we implemented over that period of time. Many hundreds of small changes, but probably 50 substantial changes. And by the end of June, we'd grown that volume from about 660,000 orders a week across both home delivery and click and collect to about 1.5 million. So more than double the size of the business, which at our scale is is something. Mm. Um, And we've maintained that capacity pretty much ever since. So we grew our capacity. We served many, many more households. It created some economic challenges, clearly, which we've been working on since then. At the same time, uh, we were working closely with government departments, with DEFRA for England and with the national governments for Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland to try and identify customers with data that most needed our help. And we set up a vulnerable customer program. We didn't have one before. Um, in the end, we identified about 700,000 people who at the time were unable to leave their home and, and had no one else to help them, had no friends, neighbors, or family members who could do a shop for them. And we reserve capacity to be able to serve those customers. And we still serve those customers today. So, uh, I mean, that's that's incredible. But uh, there's a, a practical bell going off in my head, which is it's hard enough to get customer CRM anyway. So, you know, you've got the credit card, you've got the account name, and you've got my postcode. But looking inside the household at this very private data as to, you know, do I live alone? Am I needing to shelter? Do I have, you know, conditions of vulnerabilities? This is a, a massive extension of not only the data you need, but the reliability, the sensitivity. I mean, you say in a very calm way, but this is an incredible change to simply dropping off boxes on someone's doorstep. Well, we were somewhat reliant on the goodwill of customers. Uh, naturally, we didn't have and, and probably shouldn't have all that data ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we did rely on customers identifying that they were in in that position. And I think in the main, uh, that that's worked well. Uh, mm-hmm. Customers at the same time were being contacted by their local health authorities, letting them know that they should be shielding. And therefore, those customers knew that they were in that state. Where they were an existing customer of Tesco, we were able to contact them to say, you know, we think you should be shielding. We've, you know, we've been given your information with your consent, of course, by the health authorities. Customers had already given consent for that and, and been able to offer them prioritized slots. But really, we also opened up our phone lines to say, if you are in this state and you can't do a shop for yourself, please contact us. You know, you have to rely on goodwill and the social conscience. And I think that's largely worked out. Um, but you're, you're quite right that the organizational and platform changes we had to make to ensure that we had enough capacity in the right places, uh, given different concentrations of people in this kind of vulnerable state, was challenging. Um, and that, that's part of the work that the team the team led. You mentioned that these uh, sort of very important customers were the ones that you identified needed extra help. Has that changed the way in which you, you know, those core tenants you talked about, the way in which you manage your business? Did having one particular sector to put first change anything about those core tenants that you had, or is just a subsection and therefore it was just the same as that as before? But you know, 
slightly different people. It, it, it didn't really. Um, we did discuss how we should prioritize this expanded but still limited resource that we had. But ultimately, everyone at some point has been a Tesco customer. Everyone is a mm. customer of Tesco at some point in their life. And so we made a very explicit decision not to just prioritize existing loyal customers, but to prioritize those people in the country most in need. Uh, and I still think that was the right the right decision. It would have been easy for us to say, look, you know, we've already got several million existing customers that have been loyal to Tesco. We're going to prioritize them. And, and because we were able to expand our capacity so much, we were still able, I think, to offer uh, most customers a really good service. It's been particularly positive as the demand has died a little bit in the past couple of months. But ultimately, as, as the nation's largest retailer and certainly the nation, nation's largest grocer, there's a responsibility to feed the nation. And mm. uh, everyone at some point shops in a Tesco. So, you know, it didn't change our values, really. Mm. It's very interesting. Now, um, Chris, I want to step back from the values to uh, more of a West Wing moment. So, again, uh, if you say meetings, most people start snoring in advance. They have to live through them. So the only time you get anything like a crisis is watching the West Wing, uh, you know, they're all hunkered down in the situation room. So for those of us who weren't part of that uh, pressure, what changed? Because normally, if you say, let's have three meetings a day, that you know, hammers productivity rather than increasing it. So, you know, did you have the information you needed? Did you have to get different types of information? How does decision-making communication work in these three times a day plus the reporting? I mean, that is a major change just in the business behaviors and commercial execution required. Um, to just, you know, maybe open that up a bit for us. We We did make some changes in the way that we make decisions in the way that we work. We took a decision early that we would never leave a meeting without making a decision. So that led to some longer conversations, obviously. Um, we agreed that we didn't need perfection. We didn't need perfect PowerPoint. We didn't need necessarily all the data to make most decisions and most judgments. Something I learned from my past is the importance of identifying one-way and two-way decisions, sometimes called one-way or two-way doors. Most decisions are reversible. Most decisions you can back out of. And those decisions should be taken quickly uh, with imperfect data because you can always change your mind later. Some decisions are one-way doors. They're much, much harder to reverse from. And those you should spend time on, you should ponder, you should make sure you've done the analysis and got the data. But most decisions are two-way decisions. And I think a mistake that many make is to treat every decision as a one-way door, which is, is not the case. Um, mm -hmm. So explicitly reinforcing that with the team every day that most decisions we take we can change our minds if it, if we've decided that you know if we've made the wrong the wrong call and and giving i think giving teams permission to make mistakes in favor of pace was one change we made and and you know meet, meeting with the executive committee every evening at five o'clock gives a certain frisson to the decision making because you've got to account for the last 24 hours um yes. and and you know i think the team found it i mean it was exhausting right we were working 15, 16 hour days, seven days a week for weeks on end. Um, but there, were, there was a level of energy and purpose. And something I've tried to do is maintain some of that as we've come out of the real peak of demand in the last few months, just to show what, what's possible, what we can do when we set ourselves audacious goals, we keep decision making to a small group. The power, I, maybe the, the other point I would make is the, the power of single threaded decision making and the 
the cost of consensus building. There's always a place for consensus building. Tesco is a matrixed organization, as was Amazon, as are many companies. But ultimately, someone has to make a decision. And given the focus on those two priorities, capacity and helping those most in need, we were optimizing for those goals. And ultimately, it was me making those decisions. It doesn't matter that it was me. It happened to be me. But as long as there's someone making a decision. and, And again, that principle and that mode of working has been something we've tried to carry on in the, you know, in the subsequent months. Chris, if, if you make lots of decisions in the two-way scenario you talked about and decide to change your mind, does it undermine the decision you make in the first place if you keep making changes? How, how, do, how does that play out? Well, I, it, it, it depends. I think we finessed our approach. We changed our view as time went by and we had more data and we learned more. Uh, we made uh, decisions up front, optimizing purely for capacity. We realized that, you know, some of the decisions we took were unsustainable. They were either creating too much pressure or tension in our operations. They were potentially creating poor experiences with customers, and we changed our approach. So, you know, we were never held by our prior decision making. But because you had those tenets to go, yeah. as always, to sort of measure against in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Chris, when we look at this uh, now, we're six months in, and you're being very lucid and measured and insightful. But at the time, none of us really thought we'd be where we are now. It's going to be a couple of months, get over the hump, things would stabilize, and then we'd build back to this mythical new normal. But here we are. It's still peaky. It's still changing every other week. How is the that first few pushes, how is that settling down into a normality for you now when, of course, we are looking at the traditional peak season coming upon us as well? There are things that we implemented temporarily, which we now have to go back to and make permanent. So uh, an example of that would be uh, storage. We pick uh, the majority of our sales from from our stores, Mm -hmm. and uh, we pick in waves, and there is a buffering where we store orders prior to them being loaded onto vans or being ready for click and collect for customers to come come and collect. As we grew, just the physical space requirements grew, but we were able to make use of spare space in our stores because our stores were less busy, our counters were closed, our cafes were closed and so on. So we had some physical Mm. space. So those temporary measures that we took, we now have to take a different approach and come up with more permanent solutions, given that we expect, frankly, the demand to more or less maintain. I mean, who knows? But so far, it pretty much has maintained. I expect it to maintain for the balance of this year. Very hard to predict next year. So it's mostly been on the operational side rather than the decision-making or judgment side where we've had to go back and make those changes more sustainable and more permanent. If we just compare this to, say, last Christmas's peak, if, if that was your, a, a peak, what, what are you operating at now? Uh, is it peak every day? Has it settled down to a, a higher but still manageable steady state? Where Where is the business settled in terms of um, channel and activity? Well, I'll give you some fun stats. So typically at peak, which for us is the week or two prior to Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, and when we make the Christmas delivery slots available to customers, we would typically see an increase in traffic to our website of about 2x compared to the baseline. On that weekend, during the, the Prime Minister's first announcement, we saw a 45x increase in traffic and demand. <laughs> um so about about 20 odd times more than we'd see at peak. So that's just a sort of wow. a, a fun stat. Um, today, 
we've maintained demand in home delivery pretty much at peak. It's much easier now for customers to find slots. Customers are not booking ahead so much. Um, But we are typically filling every slot that we can make available. Click and collect has come down a little. We're still way above in terms of utilization where we were pre-COVID, but it has softened a little. Uh, Now, as we're recording this, there's been a recent announcement this week of further measures being taken, and I would expect more is probably coming. And so we've seen another another little pickup in, in sales. But overall, I would say we're hovering only a little below uh, the peak demand that we were able to build back in April and June. Wow. I mean, that is extraordinary. It's amazing. The numbers are incredible. Um, is it because Tesco is the business it is that it's able to do this and therefore competition-wise, you don't really have any because of what you've been able to do and what you've shown? Well, we operate in an incredibly dynamic and competitive marketplace, as I'm sure you'll realize. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, look, I think all the all the grocers in the UK stepped up. They've all added incremental capacity. I think the difference in our business is that we have an incredibly flexible platform. So we pick from stores. We have fulfillment centers in our busiest parts of the country around London and the Southeast, which have different generations of automation. We have... Uh, manual pick uh, in fulfillment centers, what sometimes is called dark stores. And we have different levels of automation uh, all the way up to what we call goods to person, where the tote of products comes to a picker rather than the picker going to a, going to a shelf. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, we, we've just opened our latest micro fulfillment center, which creates automation within a store. That flexibility of having a mix of manual human-powered activity and automation I think has helped us grow capacity in a way that would have been difficult had we purely had an automated platform. So we use automation throughout our organization, in particular in our fulfillment centers, but we're not constrained by automation uh, in the way that you would be if everything was robotic and on conveyance. The downside of an automated solution clearly is that you're you're constrained by the maximum throughput of the automation. The flexibility we have, all these varied ways of picking and fulfilling to customers have helped us find all these opportunities, these 50 operational changes we made to grow the size of the pie overall for customers. Um, mm. So I think that would be the one thing that's um, that's different in our model versus, versus others. Interesting. Now, uh, this sort of brings us on to people as well. So you had the culture, you had a flexible and responsive management approach, but it does sound like your people internally have stepped up. Inside the business, um, your people must really have been flexible and committed to make all these changes happen. I think it comes back to values. It comes back to purpose. Um, mm. the, the, the activity in our stores, in terms of keeping colleagues safe, I think we were really quick and comprehensive in the changes that we made with, at the time, one-way aisles, face coverings, shielding at checkouts, uh, mm. and reassurance of colleagues. And I think if you show colleagues that goodwill, that we really care about their safety and well-being, and the same was true for our office-based colleagues and our, and our drivers, it creates an enormous sense of goodwill. Um, I've received hundreds and hundreds of anecdotes from both customers, and in particular drivers, who've really found this sort of sense of purpose and from from customers a real sense of gratitude for some customers the tesco driver is the only person they saw that day and the feedback on drivers in particular has been incredibly positive so there's this sense of of purpose of a national mission that i think has 
uh, I'm sure it's been true in many other organizations, but particularly I've, I've observed it within Tesco. Um, yeah. it's been, it's been exhausting and it's been a ton of work, but this sense of mission and purpose and, and values I think mm-hmm. has, has really driven us. Um, I think that, that you know, the, the company has rewarded our customer facing colleagues, both financially in terms of a, a, a bonus, recognizing the efforts that they were making, uh, but also through heaps of praise down through the organization from, from the CEO all the way down consistently, regularly, which has just had an incredibly positive effect on, on the organization. Fantastic. Now, uh, let's just segue into other positive effects. Can you tell us a bit about some of the work you're doing there to uh, ensure, you know, access to food, feeding people and minimizing waste? Yeah, I think, I think Tesco um, has, has taken a leadership position, spurred actually by Dave Lewis, our CEO, who's, who's moving on next week. He's actually mm-hmm. moving to become the president of the WWF. The, the conservation organization not the, not not, the wrestling foundation not, 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 the, rest, not the wrestling organization no spandex required uh, yes, but we wish it well with that of course <laughs> and and um we have a commitment to reducing food waste there were some announcements earlier this week on our commitments there uh, a commitment to changing our supply chain to reduce deforestation in the amazon in particular there's been uh, many uh, contributions to other organizations through this period whether it's food banks or other charities to get food to people uh, again, I think this comes back to values and our position in the country. When you're the country's largest grocer, there is a responsibility uh, that we all take very seriously to step up. And you know, m- my contribution to that primarily was around supporting vulnerable customers and working closely with government and, and trying to help government from a process and data point of view, help mm. us get to the right people. And so that was that was my, you know my team's contribution was primarily around access to food across the country. Uh, but as you say, the company has made those commitments. Another example will be reducing plastics, um, so re- removing all of our uh, plastic wraps on on multi packs. At, at our scale, you can have a real impact on these issues, and uh, you know have, have been thrilled to see the progress the company has made on 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 many of those. And you know our, our small part has been helping helping people who couldn't leave their home get food. Mm. Now, I'm sure our listener is inspired and exhausted just with what you've covered so far but what's next as if you know this year hadn't been enough already (laughs) well i I turned my mind to the future and the the question i'm asked a lot is well what's changed and some fundamentals have not changed uh fair prices fast delivery being in stock but i do think that we will at some point return to some level of of normality albeit probably on a higher baseline of online shopping generally, but particularly in grocery than we had before. Um, so, so my mission is to figure out how we can continue to grow our capacity, continue to serve customers. I do think, though, there was prior to COVID, and even more so now, a secular change in customer behavior towards immediacy. And our investment in, in micro-fulfillment, which I think will be a big part of our platform into the future, uh, is enabling us and positioning us to create services and propositions that meet those immediate missions. Well, what whether does it's micro fulfillment mean to the consumer, so it sounds great. But uh, how would I know if I've be if I'm being micro fulfilled? Um, you 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 may not know. I mean, I'll describe what it is. So we, um, as I said, we, we we pick from stores. We pick from large fulfillment centers, about 100, 150,000 square feet. Um, a lot of our investment in the future will be in in micro automation, micro fulfillment. So if you go to West Bromwich uh, right now, 
-hmm. We have an extra store there. Next to the store, you actually can't see it, but maybe in the future we'll put some windows in. There is a an automated pick tower. It's about 17,000 square feet compared to about 100,000 square feet for a typical large store. It's about three stories high, and it contains totes of products. And those totes come down through the pick tower to a goods-to-person station. Uh, a picker picks items into customer order totes, and then they're routed through for collection or for delivery. The advantage that that gives us is First of all, it gives us a huge uh, uplift in capacity. A micro-fulfillment center typically uh, will be able to fulfill about three times as many orders a day as a, as a store in about a third or a quarter of the space. Wow. Uh, it also means that we are uh, able to offer customers a very fast service. We can pick and pack and have an order ready within, in theory, within minutes, uh, as opposed to hours in a more typical manual picking operation. And then the third benefit is proximity. Uh, these things are going to be in our shops, and therefore they will be physically close to customers. So it enables a whole range of new services, new missions. As a customer, right now, we are fulfilling orders in the West Bromwich area, in Dudley and, and West Bromwich, from our first UFC. It's still scaling up in terms of volume. The customer probably wouldn't see any difference right now, uh, but in, uh, other than more capacity being available, more slots being available than they would have been before. But in the future, uh, you know, we will invest in new services that take advantage of that new that new structure. So we think it's probably the best way of fulfilling grocery, recognizing we still have a flexible platform with lots of different ways of fulfilling. But rather than having centralized automation, very expensive, very heavy on capex, where you still have to trunk orders to the customer, uh, and then you know, in, in an HGV or something, and then distributing vans locally. Having these uh, automated facilities physically near our customers creates an, an incredibly exciting number of options in terms of future growth. So as I think about the future, uh, immediacy, automation, local automation is a big part of it. And then I think there's a lot more opportunity to expand the selection we offer, the categories that we offer beyond just food and, and the general merchandise selection we have today. Great. Well, Chris, we have covered a vast amount of ground, uh, and somehow it feels like we've only just scratched the surface of, you know, a complex and a wide range of operations. So, Chris, thank you. Just thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ian and Jamie. Great to be with you. 